the woman of Samaria. John chapter 4, verses 1 to 42. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees has heard, had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. So our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. 
For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Let me begin by praying. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you meet us where we are. You speak into our life through story. And you reveal your character, your goodness, your pursuit of us. Thank you for Jesus and how he embodies God. He is very God of very God. He reveals most beautifully who God is. May we have eyes to see. May we have ears to hear, hearts that long, minds that seek to understand. For we come to your word and we lean into your spirit. Convict us of our brokenness. Encourage us in our affliction. And guide us in the way everlasting. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to begin this morning uh, a little different. Um, Not only are we doing two services, but we're beginning something a little bit different on how we start off this time. Uh, I'm going to show you a series of pictures. Pictures of people. And I want you to take a mental note of what your first response is when you see these pictures. Okay, there's a series of about 12 of them. There's not going to be any music or anything, so it's just going to be the pictures. So let's look at these pictures together and think about what's your first response when you see them. Let's watch together. All right, there's a bit of an inside joke there. Um, If you don't know, that last picture was of uh, Pastor Mike, who came and did the announcements earlier. Um, I just couldn't help it. Uh, So, but in all seriousness, uh, and joking aside here, what were some of those feelings? What were some of the notes you were taking as as the pictures scrolled through? For some of you, fear and actually hatred are not too strong of words. For others of you, it is. And maybe it's more appropriate to use the words of dismissal or maybe complacency. If we're honest with ourselves, there's probably at least one picture amongst those many 
where the idea that popped into our mind is, what a lost cause. What a hopeless case. Why? Why do we do this? Well, we all have people in our lives that we disregard, um, or that we just don't like being around, or at the very least, we've written off any hope that they'll ever come to faith in Jesus. And that's either because we have, through our perceptions, they're either too conservative or too liberal, they're too rich or they're too poor, they're too ignorant or they're too arrogant, they're too young or they're too old, they're too addicted, they're too toxic, they're too abused, whatever, too something for Jesus. And under our, we say this in our breath, oh, they'll never, he'll never, she'll never. So why even try? And maybe that's even you this morning. Underneath this nice smile, you think that if you really open up and you're honest with those sitting around you, that we'll write you off. And maybe you're writing yourself off right now, thinking, I can never change. I'll never really believe this. I can never be forgiven. I understand because there are actually plenty of moments throughout church history where the church has written people off. Or maybe you've received a perception of the church that you have to come and have all your stuff together. Whereas if you come with questions and wrestlings of identity, of your family, of your sexuality, of your, your philosophy, then you feel like you're not going to be welcomed, you're going to be written off by the church. Well, there's one person who knows this feeling all too well, and her name's Rosario Butterfield. Her lifestyle her perspectives, and really her posture towards Christians made her one of those folks that the church easily wrote off and as she wrote off much in the church. But there was a recent article called My Trainwreck Conversion that she writes in Christianity Today where she says, as a leftist lesbian professor, I despised Christians. Then I somehow became one. I was a broken mess. I did not want to lose everything that I loved, but the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world. She goes on to recollect throughout this article the frustration she had with Christians and the frustrations Christians had with her writing her hate mail. But one Christian man listened. And he actually asked questions on how and why she saw the world the way she did. Instead of coming with forceful power, he came with thoughtful humility and pursued conversation. He actually invited her over with his wife for dinner. They openly prayed with her. He was very open about where he was in his walk with Christ. He didn't bully her. And then she started reading the Bible a lot, actually, over and over, cover to cover. And it led to what she calls her train wreck conversion. Jesus broke into her really nice and neat life and messed it up (laughs) and said, come and follow me, come and see And in the midst of that, it's not like she suddenly became a right-wing Republican. Not all of her political views changed, but she found great peace. Because following Jesus, Jesus brings the write-offs and makes them his. Where most of the Christian world had written her off, one Christian man ran after her. Why? Well, this fall, we've been diving deeper into the gospel account of John. And where we see Jesus listening to others and their questions, their desires, even their heartaches under their questions. And as we listen in on Jesus listening to others, we learn how to share Jesus the way Jesus did it. 
And so far we've seen over these past couple weeks, Jesus' engaged conversation. And listen to the questions of the skeptic. He's listened through the silence of the satisfied. And he even gets down to the bedrock reality of self-reliance for the religious. And this morning we see that Jesus goes to a place so few are willing to go. He goes and he listens to the write-off, the social outcast. And this morning, we kind of look over the shoulder of John as this eyewitness account into this bold encounter. And everyone who wants to follow Jesus needs to hear this challenge. Don't write off who Jesus runs after. If there's one thing you can get away from this morning, hear that. Don't write off who Jesus runs after. Because it's here we find ourselves in the write-off. We see Jesus' heart as he listens in. And we get to see a beautiful revolution in the most unlikely of places. So if you would, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4, if you haven't already. Jesus, we find him on a road trip from Jerusalem to Galilee. It's a trip of just over 60 miles by foot. Um, But midway through, Jesus and his disciples, they stop in one of the most unlikely of cities and one of the most undesirable areas for a Jewish crew. They stop in Sychar of Samaria. And we'll get to why that is here in just a minute. But Jesus stops at this local watering hole. It was a pretty famous spot. Um, The Hebrew patriarch Jacob had dug this well millennia before. And actually, if you go to Palestine today, it's still there. Um, It's still running well. (laughs) No, no, I just got that. Um, (laughs) Didn't say that first service, so I kind of got myself on that one. Um, You see, the noonday sun, John talks about... Um, it was about the sixth hour, and that's the way of him saying it's, the no- it's noon, six hours after sunrise, okay? It's noon, it's hot, and the dry heat is blowing in from the eastern desert. And Jesus is feeling this. I mean, he's already made a significant trek from Jerusalem. And John tells us in verse 6 that Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And then something strange happens. A Samaritan woman comes to grab some ancient Aquafina. And a few things make this exceptionally strange. Uh, First, no respectable woman would have found themselves at noon getting water. They would have normally come and grabbed water either earlier in the morning or later in the evening at the cool of the day. To come at noon meant something wasn't right. Secondly, she came by herself. Usually, when women came to get water at the well, they came in a community. It was the place to share the community gossip. You know, Shem just lost his tooth. Rebecca's so, totally crushing on Josiah right now, and so mothers are chatting. But instead, she comes alone. And so that she comes alone in the middle of the day, we know already with this young woman that there's an interesting story behind her. So what does Jesus do? Well, the well is about 100 feet deep. Most of the disciples went into town, as we see from the text, to get some food, save maybe John, who's there watching this go down. And Jesus doesn't have a bucket in hand to pull out some water. So he asks this young woman for a drink. And she's shocked. She's utterly amazed. Here's why. Because she knows who she is. She doesn't know who Jesus is yet, but she knows who she is. She's the write-off, the rejected the despised, which is why she says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, from me? 
What were her three strikes? Okay, well, for starters, she's a woman. And I know that sounds really, really strange to our modern ears and an egalitarian culture, but in the first century, no self-respecting Jewish man would have initiated a conversation with a woman he didn't know, especially in a public space like this. It just wasn't done. For example, and although Jesus pushes back against this ideology over and over again, we see this even with Mary when she's washing his feet. He's pushing back against these social mores. So for example, it was common Jewish thought that for a rabbi, a teacher, to talk much with a woman, even his wife, was at best a waste of time or at worst a diversion from studying Torah, the Hebrew scriptures. There you go. That's interesting. So that's her first strike. Second strike was that she was a Samaritan and Jesus was Jewish. Samaritans and Jewish people, they violently disliked one another. It's why John adds this little parenthetical statement. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And as all racial discord does, it has generations of history here. Generational wounds. And the Genesis was actually back in 931 B.C., when united Israel had a civil war and the northern kingdom broke from the southern kingdom, eventually, centuries later, the northern kingdom kind of takes on this nickname of Samaria. The southern kingdom sometimes is referred to as Judah. And over the centuries, the northern kingdom is taken over by countless foreign political powers over and over and over again to the point that they become more and more distant from Orthodox Judaism. The Jews who lived in Samaria at that point actually build a separate temple in Mount Gerizim that rivals the temple in Jerusalem. They only believe the first five books of Torah. Um, So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they don't accept any of the prophets or the writings. And then you also have the situation where they were intermarrying with people from other religious backgrounds. And so now they've got all of different cultural practices coming together that distance them further and further from Orthodox Jewish faith. So culturally, Jews saw Samaritans as inferior, unclean, and to use a more common term today, sellouts. Um, It wasn't really a great relationship. So then there's the third strike that even caused her Samaritan community to treat her as a write-off she was promiscuous. Um, and not just with a couple guys. We find out later, as you heard read, that she was promiscuous with five different husbands. And that even sounds like a lot to modern ears. Um, imagine that in the first century. And she's living with a guy who isn't her husband. So you can almost hear her shame when she says, you're asking for a drink from me? Three strike Sally? What's going on? And high-profile, well-known, at this point, growing in prominence, Jesus. Remember, he left Jerusalem because he's growing in popularity. The Pharisees are noticing that his disciples are baptizing more people than John the Baptist. And so he's growing in popularity. And yet, in light of all this, he still asks her for a drink, even with all these strikes. And it's not just that Jesus takes the initiative where she wouldn't. It's how he does it. And that's where we're going to dig in a little bit. It's how he does it. You see, he meets her with words of judgment and superiority. No, (laughs) not at all. Instead, he approaches her in weakness as one who has been written off from the world's scene. 
He comes weary, thirsty. Yes, he's fully God, but he's also fully human. And he identifies with her humanity. And we begin to see the beauty of God become earthy flesh right here in our passage, identifying with our weaknesses. And I want to pause here and ask the question, who have you written off in your life? Who have you written off in your life? One thing Jesus shows us is that you can't write off who you identify with. Cultures apart, one respectable, one despised, one a man, one a woman, one Jewish, another Samaritan. Jesus approaches a thirsty person as a thirsty person. And the conversation, it starts on common ground. And it actually starts with God becoming flesh, asking for something. He doesn't come telling something, he comes asking for something. So who have you written off in your life? Are they too far down your priority list where you think, oh, I just don't have time. There's, it's, it's not worth it. Or are they too far gone in your mind where you think, there's no way, no matter what I do, they'll never turn to Christ. They're not worth it. Maybe that's how you see yourself this morning. And please hear that Jesus, he meets us in our weakness. He meets us in our need and he finds us on common ground. Why do, we, why do we write people off in our relationships? I think this is an important question to ask. It's because we move from common ground up to a higher plane. Pride puffs us up and we find ourselves looking down at others and we forget that Jesus has met each and every single one of us at the well. That it was a miracle by God's grace that each and every one of us are saved and delivered. You know, pastor and author Tim Keller, he's insightfully said, that one of the marks of true Christians is that they never get over their salvation. They're always surprised that God would save someone like them. So I want to ask us, I want to ask myself this question, are we still surprised that God didn't write us off? Are we still surprised that God didn't write you and me off? The ground of the cross is level for all who are looking to Christ. And even though there are 2,000 years of difference Between this woman and ourselves, Jesus offers her the same thing that he offers us. So after the woman's words had barely dissipated into the dry heat, Jesus' chapped lips, they offer what every heart thirsts for, satisfaction. Jesus tells her, if you knew the gift of God that's before you, you would have asked him for water and he would have given you living water. And she looks at it, you know, I can kind of imagine she kind of looks at him like a woman who's just heard a really bad or cliche pickup line. Because um, she's like, you don't have a bucket. Uh, you're not better than Jacob. What on earth are you talking about? Um, this makes no sense. And then Jesus tells her of the water that with one sip will quench the deepest thirst that actually transforms the desert into a spring, the dry riverbed into a roaring stream that flows without ceasing. And as he begins to tell this to her, you can almost imagine her eyes begin to tear up. She's so thirsty. She's longing so deeply. Her life has been encapsulated by what God had said in an earlier time. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, And have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. She's tasted the stagnant and temporary water that this world has to offer. And she says in verse 15 what 
each and every one of us really want to say and long to say, please, yes, give me this water. I'm tired of coming to the well. I'm tired of living in shame, of being in mock, being mocked by everyone, having to come in the middle of the day by myself. Yes, give me this water. But Jesus is never satisfied with giving us what we want. But he always digs deeper and deeper to give us our deepest of needs. And he rummages around in her dry life. And he points out what she really needs. And that's forgiveness. A savior. So Jesus asks her to go and get her husband. Seems really strange. Yes, I want that water. Well, go get your husband. And you can tell he stirred up something. Because in verse 17, you find one of the shortest responses. I don't have a husband. Period. (laughs) And you can almost imagine the scenario. I mean, as people in that situation wrestling through shame, her looking down the well, now not able to look at Jesus in the eye, thinking, is Jesus like all the other folks in town? Is he just putting this and throwing this back in my face? My failures, I can never get away from them. But Jesus, he doesn't leave it there because he's not that nice. (laughs) He cares for her too much to be too nice. And he says, you're absolutely right. You don't have a husband. You've actually had five of them. And right now you're living with a guy who isn't your husband. So technically, you're right on the money. You see, Jesus not only pursues the outcast, but he confronts her in her sin. We can't, when we come to Jesus, we can't pick and choose the kind of Jesus we want. It's just Jesus. He goes where we would never go because he has more courage than we would ever have. But he says the hardest things that we don't have the courage to say, the things and confronting the most broken parts of our life. You see, if we want the life that Jesus offers, we have to also let him rummage around in the death that dwells within us. And death never dies easily. And it's at this point, the woman realizes that she's not just talking to an ordinary Jewish thirsty guy. Um... He's a prophet or something. And so it's always easier to talk about a theological issue of controversy than it is the depths of our own sin. And so what does she do? Okay, prophet, where should we worship then? Are the Samaritans right or are the Jews right? And this is such a crux in the conversation. Many of you have maybe been there sitting across the table. Are you going to get into the old arguments and totally rabbit trail out of the conversation? Is Jesus going to turn into these same arguments of Samaritan versus Jew? Is he going to write her off? No. Because Jesus listens, and he knows he's stepping into a theological minefield. Um, But the answer he provides is going to change her life forever. Jesus reveals that God's doing something new in him. Something that makes the old arguments obsolete. Something that a shrine in Jerusalem or at Mount Gerizim, we'll never be able to fully encapsulate. The old arguments, the old divisions, they pass away, and what matters now is aligning yourself with the truth of God and what the Spirit of God is doing in that moment. And the woman says, oh, I know, I get it. You know, the promised one, the Messiah, he's going to be coming, and he's going to tell us all of this stuff. I get it. And Jesus says, no, you don't. The one who stands before you, I am he. And it's the cry that each and every person throughout the world needs to hear. He is 
the Messiah. And if she thought she was shocked at the beginning of the conversation, you can almost imagine a cold chill in the middle of a summer day going down her back when she realizes she's standing before the Messiah. And it's her that's before the Messiah. Three strike Sally. Are you listening here? Are we watching how Jesus is listening and speaking? Because you can't write off who you listen to. Now, Jesus is not only fully human and he's fully God. We get that. Um, He comes in with some extra guns blazing. Uh, He is all-knowing. But he still listens, even though he's all-knowing. Which should be a greater lesson to those who don't know all and the greater onus for us to be listening to others and not jumping to rash conclusions. I love what Francis Schaeffer, theologian, thoughtful follower of Jesus in the 20th century said, when asked how he would spend an hour with a non-Christian, this is what he said, I would listen for 55 minutes and then in the last five minutes I would have something to say. (laughs) That's wisdom. That's wisdom. But listening Jesus style, we need to get this clear too, doesn't mean We never confront. Rather, active listening is very confrontational. This woman was seeking her identity in men. She was thirsty for affection, acceptance, and love, like we all are. But the only way to give her living water was to show how toxic the water she was drinking really was. Before she could pick up one cup, she had to set the other down. And Jesus needed to show her that what she was drinking was going to forever make her thirsty. So are you listening to the people who are around you, the people who frustrate you, the people that tick you off, that are very different from you? Because it's so easy to write off those people when it's people who don't have a name or a face. It's so easy to write off those people until we learn their story, until we realize they're thirsty people just like you and I. Maybe it's the conservative racist or the person who complains about everything or it's someone's voice you've never heard, the orphan, the fatherless, the motherless, the spouseless who've been written off so long that they no longer speak. Maybe this is you. Don't write off who Jesus runs after. Don't write off yourself. That's so critical because he's running after you Well, returning to the conversation, it comes to a close. And John, our eyewitness, he tells us, the disciples, they come back from the town and they're shocked because Jesus is talking with this woman. All those those taboos we talked about at the beginning, they're experiencing as they're coming back seeing Jesus talk with this woman at the well. And they have all these questions swirling through their minds, but nobody's actually voicing them. And in verse 28... We see the woman runs off to town. And this is so critical. Look at it in your text, verse 28. She leaves her water jar behind. That's so important. John wants us to catch this. She's found living water to bring back to the town. To the people, check this, who rejected her, who were ex-lovers, ex-husbands, ex-friends, people who had written her off. She now goes back, bubbling over with new life. She can't keep it to herself, even though they'd written her off. And then the write-off in this story becomes the write-in candidate to share the gospel in her town. 
She steps into the center of town square and she begins to cry out, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And what's so interesting when we step into this passage, it's that in her exclamation of her weakness, she's not trying to act like she's got her life together. Hey, Jesus told me all the stuff I've done that you wrote me off for. Yeah, I know I'm broken, but you got to come see this guy. That's how good he is. And she points to Christ in the midst of her weakness, and it strengthens her witness. And so the town, it begins to flood out to the well to get a taste. And you can almost imagine and hear the thoughts of people thinking, well, if the Messiah talked with her, her? If the Messiah talked with her, then he will talk with me. If, if he listened to her, then he'll listen to me. If if he'll fill her, he can fill me. If he can save her, he can save me. And, and suddenly the floodgates open up. And as the crowd of town folks are running to Jesus, Jesus grabs his disciples. And he's, this is a teaching moment. And he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Verse 34 and verse 35. Do, not, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest Look, I tell you, look, lift up your eyes. See the Samaritans coming. And you see that the fields are white with harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. And there was a great harvest because many Samaritans we see believe in Jesus. Why? Because of the testimony of the write-off. Look, Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. And then they asked Jesus to stay for two days. A Jewish guy with his Jewish followers in Samaria, and they stay. And they drink deeply of Jesus. And then the story ends with the town folks saying to the woman in verse 42, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Not just the Jews, but the world. Those who are adamantly opposed even to the Jewish people, the Samaritans, this great war and battle between Samaritans and Jews. Now Jesus is actually saying it's for all. Savior of the world. And you see, you can't write off others when you yourself have been filled. You can't write off others when you've been filled. When, you, when you're full of Christ, you can finally see the harvest for what it is. When you drink deeply of Christ, he bubbles up out of you by the power of the Spirit. You'll be looking for opportunities to invite people to come and see like this wonderful woman did. Because he knows us better than we know ourselves. No matter what others have done to you, whether they were there or not, the history of pain you have with them or not, you bubble up with new life, with living water that points to Jesus Christ, the author of life. And one of the biggest problems, I think, for us as the church is that many times we plug that well. We write people off so well, don't we? We forget the miracle it was that Jesus met us at the well. We do it at school. We do it at work. 
We do it in our families. We even do it awkwardly on Facebook. Hey, did you get my friend request? Uh, you know, so for starters, so for starters, we need to gain some new habits at this, some new habits. I recently listened to a podcast um, by one pastor by the name of Andy Stanley um, about how to cultivate the habit of inviting people rather than writing them off. And he said that Christians need to train themselves, this was really helpful for me, to invite people to church whenever we hear one of three knots. One of three knots, okay? He says, anytime you hear these words, invite someone to church, no matter what, whether you've known them for three decades or you just met them that day. If you hear one of these three knots, invite them. One, we're not from around here. Two, we were not prepared for this. And three, things are not going well. We're not from around here. We were not prepared for this, and things are not going well. We're, we're not from around here. Oh, we should join me at church. Uh, there's a lot of people in the community. You get to know some folks. Um, we're centered around a person named Jesus. And I'd love for you to come and meet some new people and make some friends. You know, we weren't prepared for this. We kid. We don't know what we're doing. Um, well, you know what? There's, why don't you join me at church? There's a lot of people. We admit we don't, we're not prepared for everything, and we're trying to learn to do this together, so why don't you join us on Sunday, and we can learn together. You know, things are not going well in my life right now. Well, you were never meant to go through this alone, ever. And we as a church centered on Jesus believe we walk through this stuff together, even if you're brand new. So why don't you join me on a Sunday, and I'd love to introduce you to some folks who will walk through this with you if you want. And if we could get that down, if we could start cultivating some of these new habits, or that's just in our cue on the tip of the tongue, I think we'll be surprised at how ripe the harvest really is, how eager people are to feel invited, to feel wanted, to feel engaged. But the question is for each and every one of us, are we willing to work, to jump into the work for the write-off? Well, Jesus certainly... He could have written off each and every one of us, right? But for some reason, Jesus always runs after the write-offs. The sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the drunks, the poor, the uneducated, the sick, the persecutors, the possessed, the cowards, the prideful. And to ensure that the write-offs would forever be right ends, Jesus himself became our write-off. He took our death on the cross and paid our penalty in our place. As Isaiah says, centuries before Jesus came, but pointing to Christ, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom mid men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. All for write-offs, you and me. And it's not until we taste and see that Jesus identifies with us, that he has listened to us, and that he has now filled us by the power of his Holy Spirit through the proclamation of his good news, the gospel. It's only then we will work up the courage and the strength to run after those the rest of the world has written off. May we see the harvest as plentiful. Don't write off who Jesus runs after. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you again and are so thankful for your heart. That you're not a God who comes squashing 
You came, entered our pain, came in weakness, and was squashed for us. And then rose again to offer indestructible life. You're that kind of God. For those who are here this morning who are wrestling with believing in you, with trusting you, may your Holy Spirit continue to reveal the truth of Christ to us. For those who are faithfully walking and following after Jesus, may you encourage their hearts. May your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May you give us our daily bread. Forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. May you lead us not into temptation, but deliver us as a church from evil. For yours is the kingdom, a kingdom that enters through weakness, that is glorious, that is powerful for your namesake. Amen and amen. Before Jesus went to the cross,